Hello, everybody, and welcome to another podcast for the Data Vault Innovators community. My name is Richard Harris. I'm from Ignition Data. And today, we're going to talk about privacy, a very exciting topic I'm sure you're all thrilled to be learning about. But the reality is privacy and the protection of data is now a critical component of a, an effective data management strategy. And so with the upcoming changes to the Privacy Act looming, we thought now would be a good idea to maybe revisit what our current regulatory framework and key issues are, uh, take a look at what we think is going to be front and centre for the new Act and what that means for us in the Data Vault community. Joining me today, James Hartwright from Cognition Studio. James, please uh, say hi. Hi. Um, yeah, uh, so the privacy side, um, I've been actively involved in uh, in Europe, in the US and in Australia, New Zealand um, and from both sides. So I've been consulting, which is my day job, um, to clients, but I've also ha actually had to implement um, a number of the Privacy Act regulations uh, for some large organizations. So hopefully I can give both sides of the of the fence of the sort of things that we need to do. Indeed. And uh, I myself uh, have taught a course for the Fundraising Institute of Australia in privacy and protecting uh, donor data. So between the two of us, I think we've got quite a lot of experience in how to use uh, how to use data and how to protect it. Striking that balance between, I think, promoting and protecting data at the same time. So, why don't we start off then with uh, the basics, really? When we're talking about the Privacy Act, we're talking about personal data. What do we mean when we're talking about personal data right now? Yeah, um, so it's the, the sort of things that you would think of as being personal. So, name, address, date of birth, um, email address, phone number. Um, but it also extends to things like images, images that can identify you as an individual, um, signatures, your voice print, any of those contact center recordings will be deemed personal data. And then stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think of, things like a customer number, a customer number that gets printed on an envelope, if you still get envelopes, <laughs> uh, letters through, um, in anything that's an external number that other people might be able to see, that's also deemed personal data. And we're also living in a world where, uh, in the digital side, that a cookie attached to an identity could also be considered personal yeah. data now. Cookies, IP addresses, yeah. It always comes down to whether you can really use uh, that data to identify and differentiate an individual. It doesn't even matter now whether you know that individual's name. If you can treat that person as an individual, then um, we can consider that personal information. So for those of us who've been operating in the traditional sense of you know, name, address, email, etc., and maybe not given thought to that, um, that's where the, the law has evolved uh, even over the last few years as we've gotten better and better at using information to differentiate um, down to, uh, well, really down to an audience of one now. And uh, so what about, James, sensitive data? Where, how does that differentiate from personal, in your opinion? Yeah, um, there's, so there's um, within the Australian Privacy Act um, and um, in GDPR, the European one, there are, there are special categories of customer data deemed sensitive data. That's different to things like commercially sensitive data, which still needs security and control, but isn't necessarily under strong under the strong regulation of law that sensitive data in against personal data. So it's it's sort of a subset of that personal data. 
and it's stuff that that um, is really set out there to go that this data, if if it's that it shouldn't be used for profiling analysis to um, to discriminate individuals. So this is sexual orientation, um, racial origin, religion, any associations or unions that you're part of, uh, but down to biometric information, so, you know, DNA that is uh, potentially um, leading you to some genetic um, predisposition to, to illness. So all those things that, are, you know, that, it, that would be discriminatory if used. Now, you could say that other data in around the personal side of your photo, et cetera, would be deemed sensitive. It's not under law and not under the Australian Privacy Act. But it is a special category, and I and the, the way as I, as I say that I tend to use it is, could this be used in a discriminatory way? If it could, let's deem it sensitive data. I think it's worthwhile as well to point out that we're using the word discriminatory, and in uh, the pejorative sense, of course, there's a negative connotation that we you might use that information to negatively impact an individual in some way. But of course, discriminatory can be you're selecting someone positively, i.e. you're using that information to include them in, say, a marketing campaign. But that the law doesn't differentiate there. If you're still discriminating, i.e. selecting someone on that uh, information, then that is uh, that is uh, contrary to, uh, to, to, to the Act as it stands. So again, for those of us who are working uh, mostly with, you know, customer data to support, you know, marketing campaigns or, or communication to uh, to our base. Um, these are things that we've got to be very cognizant of that are we using information that potentially we shouldn't do, even if we think we're using it for a good reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah that's or what we believe is a good reason. What we believe is a yeah. good reason. And look, we, we you, you touched on there in terms of the use, and we'll talk about ethical uh, use of data a, a bit later on, but what right now then is our responsibility when we're talking about personal and sensitive information? What does the law say? What are the regulations that we have to be aware of when uh, when thinking about how to manage data? Mm, yeah. Um, well, there's, there's um, under the Australian focus, there are, there are currently 13 privacy principles. Um, under GDPR, under the uh, Californian New Privacy Act, the CPRA, which has taken over from the CCPA, and most of most of the laws that are in there and around there in privacy around the world um, have controls that you need to follow around uh, capturing data, storing data, sharing data, and retaining data. So, so w when you're capturing data, that you need to inform the customer what you're capturing and what you're going to do with it. When you're storing data, that you're storing it in a secure way according to the sensitivity. Sorry, I've used the sensitivity, <laughs> the <laughs> classification of that data. Is it personal, sensitive, etc.? The sharing that you need to inform the customer who you might be sharing that data with and give them the option to opt out from that or not even opt into it mm -hmm. and then retain. So the, there's a piece there around, all right, I, I got this data 10 years ago. When you signed up for a newsletter, you still got that. Well, why? There needs to be a business reason for why you're keeping and holding on to this data. And the majority is around that there's a continuing um, uh, exchange um, uh, contract 
um, to, uh, to use the more legal word, between us and the customer or prospect, um, that you're still giving them newsletter emails or anything like that. But then the other is that is there, there is a legal requirement. So there's a lot in financial services that says you need to retain all of this data for seven years so that if you get hauled over the coals or this person is found to be money laundering or something like that, you can trace it through. But yeah, yeah customering, uh, sorry, capturing, storing, sharing and uh, retaining are the sort of the core and um, the Australian Privacy Act and others. Sure. Uh, the the other thing on top of the Privacy Act is giving the consumer the right to see what data an organization holds them on them. And this is still restricted to personal and sensitive data, but to apply what in uh, European terms is called a data subject access request. And that's an individual can come in and say, here are my credentials, here's my email address or my name, please return me all of the personal data that you have on me and, that, and give it to me in a usable form. So don't give me 84 pages of printout, but just give me something that's in a plat file or something. So that's the, the, the coverage of the Australian privacy principles as they stand today. Great. And it's worthwhile noting that the, um, the principles are not prescriptive. So when we talk about some of these things, the, the law says, for example, people have the right to uh, correct any errors within their data and that you can't charge them for that, for example. But the law doesn't tell you how you should do that. Um, so there's case law that kind of drives where the, 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 the reasonableness comes in because if you're a small organisation with you know, a team of two or three people managing a relatively small database, um, how you go about facilitating that and meeting that obligation, of course, is going to be very different than if you're a multinational bank, for example, uh, with all those endless budget and, and technology capability. So um, that's an important thing to consider as well. There is a context that you can apply to how you meet these obligations and whether it's reasonable, of course, is you know where the, the, the courts will eventually come in and, and define that. Um, so, yeah, I think um, one of the ways that we see, obviously, uh, the management and protection of data being the, the largest issue right now is the scale and the size of the data breaches that we're, that we're seeing. Why don't we uh, touch on that for a second? Because we've seen some quite high-profile breaches just recently in Australia, and I know that uh, it's one of the consistent statistics that come up um, from my research that the vast majority of data breaches can be in some way, shape or form put back down to some form of human error, whether it's error in how something was architected uh, or just somebody doing something as silly as putting something on a USB stick and leaving it on the seat of a bus or a taxi. Yeah. Um, what's your uh, point of view on that? Yeah, um, the you could, of course, just go, well, it's the hackers. It's the hackers' fault. Um, that if there weren't hackers trying to break into my systems, then all, all things would be rosy. But um, but yeah, in truth, most of it is um, combinations of human error. Um, so, for example, um, the where you ha so there was one where employee details were stored on a historic system for a reward scheme, looked after by a third party vendor. Um, and had been running, I think it was from finished in 2017. And for whatever reason, that system had just sat there with the data in it from 2017. Um, and then 
actually uh, somebody managed to get in there. So yeah, that's human error around that retention piece that I said is there is zero business reason for us to hold on to reward scheme data from 2017 that's no longer active. So you should just be deleting it, not holding on to it. Um, others in around, you know, the, the classic of putting, hey, here's my user ID and password and putting it up on the screen, not impl implementing single sign-on or and two-factor authentication, that just, uh, you know, um, allowing people to um, to um, go again go with natural human nature of making things easy, but the the vast majority have been things where through not thinking about those pieces in storing, sharing, and retaining data that people have managed to get in and see data and draw out data that they shouldn't really yeah. have done, and that's the majority of those large breaches have been that. Yes, USB sticks, yes, printouts, that's things that we that are not good, but it, they're not most of the major breaches. Most of the major breaches are things like where people have copied production data down into development databases and then gone, hey, it's only development, let me share that with a third party, but it's real active data. So, so it's taking, you know, taking care that, I always go to those privacy principles and the law these are these are strong guide rails for you about what you should do looking after data and yeah. applying more of those of, of saying, well, here's personal data. Who really needs to get access to it? Yeah. And you put that down to a very, very few people who really, yeah. really see that personal data involved. And for those of us in the data warehousing space, which of course we all are, there is a very strong argument for asking the question, does personal information need to be actually stored in the data warehouse. Yeah. When you really get down to it, a lot of that information, the metadata is just as powerful. You can index or, or, or obfuscate yeah, yeah. that data in a meaningful yeah, way. Totally. You don't need to necessarily make that uh, part of your, your data warehousing mm -hmm. ecosystem. Yeah. And, and and in Data Vault, there, is, there are already processes, standards that we, principles that we have, which is where you've got something like personal data, you segregate it out. And yeah, your next bit, as you said, Richard, is, well, I've segregated it out, put it away. If I can draw, if I can draw the metadata out, if I can take date of birth and just extract year of birth, that's still usable in analytics and slicing and dicing of reports. But I've not drawn out the raw personal data that would be um, would be potentially bad if it got exposed. Yeah, of course. And and look, the other thing as well, I think it's worth touching on is. Um, when errors do occur, an approach that I've seen work very well is, a, is really a, a no-blame review. You're not looking for the individual that made a mistake because at the end of the day, these are all systemic issues. The process, was it followed or not? And if it wasn't followed, then the question needs to be raised, how do we put in safeguards to present, prevent someone from not following? Are there additional reviews? Human beings are fallible. We make mistakes, we have good days and bad, uh, and we are under pressures to deliver to timelines a lot of the time, which can sometimes cause us to, to seek those shortcuts. So if, uh, if breaches occur when you're, when you're uh, you know, look, looking at these things, coming at it from a how do we prevent this from a systemic approach uh, is often probably the most helpful uh, way to do it. Um, before we talk about the upcoming changes, I think a good bridge between the two is the ethical use of data. Um, we're seeing a lot in the analytics and data science space 
Coming to the fore now, and again, ChatGPT seems to dominate the conversation about are we training our AIs in using ethical data? Are we seeing biases come through in our algorithms because the data itself is is biased? So maybe can we talk a little bit about, you know, from your point of view, where does the role of ethics play even under the current uh, data management uh, ethos? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I know there's, there's the most basic coming back to that capture and use. So um, the... Um, some analysis that was done um, on email addresses. So an individual has supplied their email address for you to do um, send them emails, send them content. That's an expected use of the data. But um, most people who set up their own personal email address will have um, had something like, well, I put my first name, my last name, and my year of birth in to construct a nice, unique email address. Now, you could go, oh, well, look, I can do some great analytics and draw those out and go, hey, I, so it says Donald Trump 1946 at gmail.com. Well, I know Donald's a first name. I know Trump's a nice last name and 1946 is probably his year of birth. Um, it's about 80% true, by the way, that sort of structure. Um, that drawing that data out and using it is actually not, um, it, it's breaking those principles. And if you take it to the next level, it starts moving into the unethical nature. It's it's you're using data for a purpose that for a purpose other than what it was supplied by the individual for, and 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 I think that's probably one of the core pieces. That the second one around the unethical use. Well, there's 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 the discriminatory part. Is yeah, anytime you're using anything that's deemed that deemed in that sensitive area, you either <laughs> don't do it at all. Um, don't put those attributes into your analytical model to, to generate things. Or if you're doing it, do it with great care, understanding and a realization and probably an acceptance from the individual that you're going to use that sort of data. I them. think that's uh, more and more where a lot of it comes into making sure you've got the permissions uh, from the individuals uh, you know, at the point of data capture and, uh, and of course, that you start to build into your, your metadata, your data dictionaries, your data catalogs, et cetera, for what purpose, what permitted purpose you have that information. So people coming in and wanting to you know, grab uh, some of that data know what they can and can't do with it. And it's interesting, the power of the name, uh, because, of course, from someone's first name, you can pretty accurately derive their gender. And uh, quite often it gives you an age band as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that someone called Ruby is probably Mm going to be on the older side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, someone called Beyonce, probably a little bit younger. Um, and yeah. so the, the, the name can be a quite, quite an interesting mm. data from which to derive a whole bunch of other insights for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so look, we know that the Privacy Act is going through an overhaul. We know that it's going to be looking a lot more like GDPR. Um, what do you see as probably the major change that's going to be impacting us when, uh, when it's finally written? Yeah, the biggest one I see based on my personal experience with working in organizations and uh, consulting gigs I do, there's um, a, a structure called right for erasure or more commonly known as right to be forgotten. Um, and what that is, is an individual can say, I no longer have a business relationship with you. Um, please delete all of my personal data through all of your systems. And you must do that. 
So this is already present in GDPR. It's already present in a number of uh, other acts. Um, I see it's actually in the report that this is going to be applied into Australia. In truth, it's already starting to make its way through. Um, consumer data right in Australia for financial services, etc. If you sign up to the consumer data right program, you have to implement right to be forgotten. So it's coming. It's it's definitely coming. Um, and and in truth, it's another one of those where um, you know a sort of a reinforcement of a retention policy. Individuals want and should have control of how their personal data is used. So if they're putting in a request to your organization saying, please delete any any knowledge of me that you have, we as organizations should respect that. Yeah. Now, when you say delete, obviously one of the big challenges in this day and age with cloud computing and distributed networks, et cetera, et cetera, is it reasonable to think we are actually going to delete that data? Or is it going to be enough, do you think, that, again, you mentioned the data vault methodology, that we could carve that data out into a separate satellite within our warehouse uh, and, and keep it so that it's not accessible within the organization but you can still retain it, as you say, for some organizations, there might be legal reasons to do mm, so. Yeah. Um, there, look, there are, there are some processes, as, as you've said, that we've just talked about in ways that you might be able to fulfill this. And that's all cool when you're talking about that, the name, the address, the email address. But that thing that I said, customer numbers and things, those customer numbers are commonly used as linkage. They could yeah. turn into business keys in Data Vault. So you actually have to think about this in design um, and possibly uh, reorientate some of the things that you've already put if you've already deployed your vault. The, so the right to be forgotten, um, I've not seen it fully tested in law, but yeah, effectively you, you must rip through all of your systems, your operational systems and your lakes and your warehouses and remove um, any instance of or properly obfuscate, one-way hash, not reversible, not brute forcible, you need to remove that data from your systems. So, yeah, so yeah in Vault, we need to think about the, that design. So if we've got a business key that is, that is naturally using something like an email address as linkage, we need to build a key lookup table that turns that into some properly incrementing ID. We need to take that incrementing ID and use that as our business key through the linkage. When so that if we get a right to be forgotten, we can remove that that link it that link from the lookup table. We've still got all of that history, all of the profiling, all of the analysis, all of the ability to see behaviors. But what we haven't had to do is to go through all of our records and all of our type two insert only <laughs> to try and overwrite that data. Which if we're running in an insert only mode, you can't do. So all yeah. of that type two stuff, we've got to do it all in design. Um, and in coming back to the data lakes, if you've got a data lake that is recording like a file per hour, file per day, you need to seriously think about how you manage that because taking each of those files, running through, finding that record, recreating the file and redropping it, there's all sorts of issues in terms of con consistency and flow that we've got to do. So that, that piece of right to be forgotten especially in the data warehousing environment, is best done by design um, and um, making those forward linking, obfuscating, removing the metadata, setting it aside so that it, 
so that when you apply right to be forgotten, it's as simple as possible, still allowing you to do your your analysis. Fantastic, thank you. And look, certainly it's going to be uh, an interesting uh, update to the Act. Um, I think I agree. You know, this right to be forgotten, and therefore that need to have a strong lineage of your data through the organisation is going to be paramount. I'm sure there's going to be some other interesting uh, changes. So when the Act is finally published, we might do a, a quick update uh, on this. Um, so, James, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. For those of you who might be a bit worried about whether you've architected in quite the right way and if you're ready for these things, um, yeah, we, uh, we're seeing a lot more activity through our, um, our Data Vault review service and our Data Maturity Assessment, uh, which is another uh, consulting engagement that we can come in and have a look at uh, what you're doing. Uh, and maybe advise on where you might uh, uh, have opportunities to improve how you're managing uh, PII and, uh, and and your sensitive data. Certainly, it's top of mind for a lot of uh, our clients at the moment. It seems to uh, be driving a lot of concern and a need for a review of of really the whole data governance approach that organisations are taking. So, hopefully, this has been a helpful session and a reminder. To, uh, to take a look at uh, where you might have those exposures um, and, uh, and take care of them uh, sooner rather than later. Again, James, thank you very much. And everyone, thank you for your time today. We'll talk to you again soon.